It is our privilege to welcome back to the Waukesha Expo Gary Ka. Uh, Gary was with us uh, several years back uh, for a VCY rally. Uh, he's a former Europe and Middle East uh, trade specialist for the state of Indiana. Uh, Gary's uh, position caused uh, him to travel extensively. And in those travels, uh, he began seeing that there were some efforts that were underway to bring about a one-world economic system, a one-world political system, and uh, start putting the pieces of the puzzle together in that regard, and not just in uh, those financial systems and political systems, but also discovered a religious motivation that's connected to all of that as well. And uh, we, he has uh, appeared on numerous radio and television talk shows across uh, the United States, sharing the message with people all across the nation. Uh, he is founder and executive director of Hope for the World, based in Indiana. And uh, he is here tonight to speak on the topic, the coming globalization. Let's give Gary a warm Southeast Wisconsin welcome tonight. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Vic. It's uh, truly good to be back here in Waukesha. Uh, we have a lot of friends in this area, and it's uh, good to see all of you again. And um, this evening, for the very first time, my wife Audrey has been able to join me at one of these VCY rallies. I always go home and, and tell her about the wonderful people I met and the friends we made. Well, tonight she's able to be here with us, and she's back there at the book table. So those of you who uh, call into our office sometimes now, you know, uh, the face at the other end of the, of the voice. And um, I guess it would be appropriate tonight, uh, being that tomorrow is uh, Valentine's Day, uh, to say a word about my wife. Uh, she didn't know I was going to do this. It's not difficult to say kind things about her because she has truly been an incredible blessing in my life. God has uh, given me the best, and I, I am so grateful for her. And uh, I don't know what I would do without her. She loves the Lord with all of her heart, uh, loves me in spite of myself, <laughs> and uh, has been a great mother and uh, ministry partner with me. Thank you, honey. Um, I would have loved to stay here yet tomorrow and, and be able to spend some time with a number of people in the area. Uh, but we're going to have to get up at the crack of dawn and head back down to Indianapolis because our oldest daughter is flying in tomorrow from the country of Mali, West Africa, where she has been on a medical mission trip for the last six weeks. And uh, so we've got to be at the airport to um, uh, pick her up, and we look forward to her stories and how God has used her during these last few weeks. I've actually had a lot of fun with this. Uh, people asking me where Alyssa is at and what she's doing, and I, I tell them she's just a few hours from Timbuktu. And um, I, know, I didn't realize till fairly recently that there is a city by that name in Mali. She's literally a few hours from, from Timbuktu, and if you don't believe me, you can look on a map and you'll find it. Um, but she has been kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but people needing a lot of help in that area and some doors that opened up through several different Christian organizations. And so she has been there and she's looking to go full time into missions. So again, that's why we're heading out tomorrow morning uh, early to get back there. But again, uh, thank you all for coming tonight. What a great, great crowd. Uh, we, we thought between it being Valentine's Day weekend 
and the kickoff of the Olympics that we had a couple of strikes against us. Uh, but not so. Uh, a lot of you here this evening, and we thank you and really appreciate you making the effort to come out. Would you turn with me in, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24? This is, of course, I, I believe the lengthiest prophetic passage in the New Testament uh, where Jesus summarizes uh, many of the events of the last days and what would take place in the kinds of signs we could be looking for. So turn with me to Matthew 24. And while you are doing that, I'm just going to make a quick mention about our, our book table. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, my two books, En Route to Global Occupation and The New World Religion. Uh, we have copies of those back there this evening. And also three DVDs that have just come out in the last four months that you may be interested in. Two of them are talks that I've given. Um, one of them is a documentary put out by, uh, by um, uh, Cloud 10 Pictures called Shadow Government. And I had the privilege of being one of maybe a dozen or so people who are involved in that documentary who were interviewed for that. It's about an hour and a half long, and it's a great door opener uh, to share with, uh, with friends uh, who need to know the Lord, as well as your Christian friends who just need to be informed about some of those developments. Uh, finally, I just wanted to mention our newsletter. This is our main way of staying in touch with people and keeping up to date. Um, it is a subscription-based newsletter, and that's because it is expensive to produce. We put about 200 man-hours into every issue. It comes out quarterly. It's about 20 pages long. And we do our level best to uh, put together a newsletter that is Christ-honoring, that is written with integrity, and that you don't have to be embarrassed about to share it with with your friends. They might not agree with everything in it, uh, but they, you shouldn't have to be embarrassed to share this newsletter with others. Uh, a lot of effort goes into it, and we pray for God's blessing on that. And if you're interested in receiving that, there are uh, newsletter subscription envelopes uh, back there at the table that Audrey can help you with. Um, those of you watching by television or listening over the air, uh, you can get all this information as well by going to our website. GaryCaw.org. That's G-A-R-Y-K-A-H dot O-R-G. Now, if you have your um, uh, Bible open to Matthew 24, I want to begin by reading from verse 32, and I will be continuing on down to verse 39. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putting forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So likewise, ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Speaking of Christ's second coming. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be." Now, we don't want to be caught off guard like the people were at the flood. Many of them just wouldn't listen to what Noah said. 
and the warnings that, that God sent. Today, we see so many prophecies being fulfilled right before our eyes. Reading the headlines in the newspapers is almost, it's a confirmation of, of the Bible, and many things are getting ready to happen that haven't happened yet. And so, as Christians, we need to be attuned to what is taking place around us because this is God's way of letting us know that the time is drawing closer to his return. And we need to be living for him. We need to be drawing closer and closer to, to the Lord each day and be his vessels in these last days as we reach out to others. You know that we're all being watched every day. We're all examples for the Lord. All of us have testimonies all day long. You're either giving a good testimony or a bad testimony every minute. So this, this evening, as we're going to be looking at certain events happening around the world and exposing certain organizations as well as people, you know, sometimes it's easy to look at what's going on out there, but we also need to be looking at our own lives and searching our hearts. Are we walking with the Lord the way we should? Are we in step with his will? Or are we really hanging on tightly to the things of this world? Philippians 2.15 tells us to become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is God's will for us is to be shining lights for his honor and glory in this world that when people see us they realize there's something different about us, that we are living for a purpose, that we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to begin by giving you that challenge at the beginning. Again, because it's easier sometimes to look at what other people are doing wrong without examining ourselves. We need to do both. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, to examine the truth, to look at your word, to put the pieces together, Lord, that you've put there for us, and to understand the times in which we are living. I just pray, Lord, tonight that we would be informed and challenged, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would move upon us, Lord, to be more fervent in our love and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen. This evening, we're going to focus on certain developments regarding President Obama, the Middle East, interfaithism, and the Vatican. Nothing controversial. Uh, these, these are developments I thought you needed to be aware of, and so that's what I came prepared to speak on uh, this evening. Some of these things, some of you will already be aware of, for others of you, it may come as a shock, but everything I'm sharing this evening is fully documented, and I'm not going to talk about anything that I cannot document. I wanted to let you know that up front, and I'll be sharing much of that documentation along the way. So let's get going. Let's, let's begin with President Barack Obama. On May 18th of last year, during an intense two-hour session with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Washington, President Obama made clear that he is determined to see the implementation of a two-state solution 
in Israel and a complete halt to Jewish settlements in the West Bank. According to Jerusalem Newswire, the news service, a few days before this important meeting took place, White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel warned that the two-state solution remains, quote, the only solution, and that Israel had arrived at, quote, its moment of truth. Obama, you see, is using the stick and carrot approach with Netanyahu. If Netanyahu wants to see the Iranian nuclear threat effectively confronted by the U.S., he must ensure progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front in order to get cooperation and benefits from the United States. Along these lines, I'd like to take you on a bit of a rabbit trail right now, talking about some of the influences and pressures that are being brought upon Benjamin Netanyahu behind the scenes, some of it coming through our president. And you probably will not hear about this through the mass media. <clears throat> but President Obama has a special contact that he may be using with Iran to get Iran to either back off or apply more pressure on Israel depending on whether Israel gives Obama the concessions he wants or not. Have any of you ever heard of a man by the name of Raila Odinga? Some of you have, maybe a few percent of you. I, I see some nodding heads out there. But he is arguably the most powerful Islamic political leader in the country of Kenya. He is the head of a group of influential and radical Muslim leaders in that country. Well, a little bit over two years ago, toward the end of 2007, Odinga ran for president of Kenya, but lost. And almost immediately, as the results began coming in from the election, rioting, pillaging, killing took place all around the country. And the people that were carrying this out were closely associated to people tied very closely to Odinga, this Islamic figure in Kenya. In fact, if you're wondering, and, and the news media did cover some of this. Uh, do any of you remember that? It was around Christmas time. A lot of bloodshed that took place in, in Kenya. But we weren't told everything. 800 churches were destroyed or burned to the ground. But not one single mosque. That kind of tells you where this was coming from. Also, approximately 1,000 people were killed, nearly all of them Christians. And these were Odinga's thugs coming out against much of the Kenyan population because they were upset that he did not win the election. Things got so bad that the government of Kenya finally had to give him a key position in their government. And that government is now being run duly by Odinga and one other individual. So he has been raised to a very high level of, of power in that country. WorldNet Daily reported that Odinga, prior to the 2007 election, concluded a written agreement with Muslim leaders stipulating that if they delivered him the Muslim vote, he would in turn, once elected, change the constitution in Kenya to declare Islamic law as the ruling authority in Muslim-dominated regions. And he's working toward that end right now. Probably just a matter of time 
till that takes place. It gets more interesting, though. You might be wondering, what does all this have to do with Barack Obama and Israel? Well, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm just having to lay some groundwork here. Barack Obama, with a donation of nearly $1 million, along with one of the sons of Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, were among the biggest contributors to Odinga's 2007 campaign in Kenya. You say you want the documentation for that? Okay. Just one source, I believe this one is an excellent source, Jerome Corsi, uh, who has been writing on this subject, putting his life on the line, frankly. He went to Kenya to investigate this and barely got out with his life. They detained him there, surrounded him with men carrying weapons, and after a day or so of him not knowing what would happen to him, they escorted him to the plane, told him some choice words, and, and saw him off. But he came back from Kenya with a lot of important information and, and verified uh, details. And if you have a chance to read some of his writings, I'd strongly encourage it. One of the articles he wrote, he said, Obama raised $1 million for, for foreign thugs' election. And he said, according to an internal document obtained by WorldNet Daily, this is a memo, uh, they obtained a memo, it was prepared by the head of Odinga's campaign finance accounting section, a guy by the name of Shaquille Shabir, as an official report delivered to the national treasurer for Odinga's Orange Democratic Movement Party, otherwise known as ODM. So this is an, an official document they're quoting from here, from Kenya. And it revealed that among the 72 individuals and organizations that contributed money to Odinga's 2007 presidential run in Kenya, Shabir lists an organization known as Friends of Senator Barack Obama. It's one of his organizations, officially Friends of Senator B.O. As having donated 66 million Kenyan shillings, which is about $950,000, documented to this Muslim leader who is now in power in Kenya, who would like to bring in Sharia law. But it gets even more interesting. Not only did Obama, through one of his organizations, contribute that kind of money to his campaign, but Raila Odinga is Barack Obama's cousin. I can document this through five different sources. I'll just share one of them here with you this evening. I think it should be sufficient. It's from British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC News. And the date on this was October 15th of 2008, just a few weeks before the election here in the U.S. And the title of uh, the blurb says, Odinga says Obama is his cousin. It says, Mr. Odinga told the BBC's The World Today program that Senator Obama's father was his maternal uncle. The Kenyan leader made the statement in an interview in which he discussed foreign interest in the political turmoil in his country. He said, Mr. Obama had on Monday taken time out of campaigning for the New Hampshire primary to call him twice to express his concern and to say that he would also be calling Mr. Kibaki. So even while President Obama was campaigning in New Hampshire, he was taking the time 
to stay in touch with Odinga, his cousin in Kenya. Again, th this information isn't that difficult to find out. Before we got it from BBC, by the way, uh, we had learned about this from two different missionary sources in Kenya, but we don't want to quote these people publicly for obvious reasons. Um, I, I don't think they want to have their names uh, dragged into this, but other sources as well. But you will not hear this through the major networks, even though it's true. Okay, so now we have Odinga holding a major position in the Kenyan government in power as Obama's cousin, who Obama supported and helped to get into power in Kenya. Well, on February 25th of last year, almost exactly a year ago, Ahmadinejad of Iran made a trip to Kenya in which he held a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Odinga at the Laiko Regency Hotel in Nairobi. This according to uh, Jerome Corsi, and the date on this is June 25th, 2009. He reported on this. So now we have Ahmadinejad getting together with his new friend Odinga in Kenya. Then Odinga, on May 28th of last year, made a trip to Tehran to meet with Ahmadinejad on his own soil. While there, the purpose of it was to agree to the establishment of special working groups to advance the implementation of signed memoranda of understanding on a wide range of issues, including trade, banking, agriculture, oil, and education, according to a joint communique issued at the end of the meeting. So you have this exchange going on now between the leadership of Kenya and Iran. Now my question is, the fact that Odinga is Obama's cousin and that they are in regular contact with each other and that that, that is known, you could see how Obama could communicate through Odinga to Ahmadinejad in Iran, even causing Ahmadinejad to put more pressure or less pressure on Israel based on what happens or doesn't happen in Israel in the peace negotiations and the discussions that are underway. Now, I don't know specifically if that's happening, but I think these questions ought to be asked. And I think it's time for the major news media to at least report on this relationship and the kinds of things that are going on. But I think at the very least, uh, we need to be aware of of this Mr. Odinga in Kenya and keep an eye on him and the uh, regular communications that he is having with Ahmadinejad in Iran. Picking up where I left off earlier, having come full loop now on this rabbit trail I was telling you about, on Jerusalem Day, which in Hebrew is known Yom Yerushalayim, which was May 21st of last year, Less than a week after his contentious White House meeting with Netanyahu, Obama floated his first trial balloon with the Israeli leader by trying to have the United Nations flag flown over the Western Wall, also known as the Kotel, K-O-T-E-L. Appearing at the Merkaz Haraf Yeshiva in Jerusalem for the holidays festivities, Prime Minister Netanyahu, however, boldly declared, quote, the flag that flies over the Kotel is the Israeli flag. Our holy places, the Temple Mount, will remain under Israeli sovereignty forever. End quote. 
Now, he's getting a lot of heat, you know, and, and he's caved in a few places. But he, he is having people from the Middle East, from the United States, from Europe, all applying a great deal of, of pressure. And right at the top of the list is our President Obama. Obama had actually put forth the proposal of flying the UN flag over Jerusalem uh, in April of last year during a meeting he had at the White House with King Abdullah of Jordan. So the two of them had conspired on this and they tried to pull a quick one on Netanyahu and again he stepped in and said no way. Then on June 4th, Barack Obama's maneuvering on behalf of Islamic Arabs paid off. As you remember, he was welcomed as a favorite son in Cairo, Egypt. From the moment he opened his speech in Arabic with the Islamic greeting, peace unto you, the 3,000 guests at Cairo University seemed mesmerized by his words. Obama received the response that he was looking for. The morning headline in Egypt's most popular newspaper, Al-Mazri Al-Yum, read, Obama, the one we've been waiting for. That was the headline in Egypt's top newspaper. Obama, the one we've been waiting for. Overnight, it seemed, he had become a messiah-like figure to millions of Arabs. ABC News correspondent Laura Satrakian found t-shirts being sold in Egypt that likened Barack Obama to King Tutankhamun, the famous pharaoh. Specifically, the t-shirts read, Obama, new Tutankhamun of the world. And you could see people throughout Egypt wearing these t-shirts. While Obama's Muslim background and his Arab middle name, Hussein, no doubt have factored into the equation, the fanatical reception he received from Arab Muslims almost made it seem as if they know something we don't. Could it be that they do? Israel's Haaretz News Service, quoting the Times of London in November of 2008, reported that 8,000 Bedouin Arabs were claiming Barack Obama as a lost member of their tribe, which is based in the northern village of Bir al-Maksur in Galilee. One of the village's council members, Abdul Rahman Sheikh Abdullah, told the Times they had withheld the claims prior to the U.S. election so as not to interfere in the campaign. Yeah, if this would have come out before, that, that would have been highly significant and might have had an impact on the campaign. He said, quote, we knew about it years ago, but we were afraid to talk about it because we didn't want to influence the election, Abdullah purported. He goes on to say, quote, we wrote a letter to him, Obama, explaining the family connection, end quote. Abdullah claims to have documentary evidence of the family connection. This astonishing claim has brought a stream of visitors to this Bedouin village where the tribesmen celebrated Obama's victory with a massive party after his election that went on for days. The Times, according to the Times, the Klan is so certain of the connection that two of its newest members have been named Obama. So they have little children now over there running around being, being named Obama because they believe he is one of their distant relatives. Another source, a medical doctor by the name of Dr. Hatim Kananhi, who is also a popular author and a leading figure among Palestinian Arabs, wrote the following on November 7th of 2008. This is a direct quote now, a lengthy quote from him. 
This morning, I received a call from Ibrahim, my Bedouin colleague, seeking an expert opinion on a minor public health issue he faced. He opened with a reproachful tone in his voice. Why haven't you come to congratulate me? What is up? Another promotion or a new child? No, haven't you heard? The Americans have elected a Bedouin to the White House. He then proceeded to explain that the Hujarat tribe in the village of Bir al-Maksur has thrown a big party feasting on rice and mutton, celebrating all night with songs and dabke dance, and distributing sweets to well-wishers for the past two days. Obama's great-grandmother on his father's side, they claim, was a daughter of the tribe. My informer reports that one of Obama's acclaimed tribal granduncles was interviewed on the Israeli Arab language TV news. When asked why he didn't divulge his kinship secret earlier, he replied in Hebrew, I didn't want to influence the outcome of the elections in a foreign country, end quote. So this was known well in advance, but the information didn't get out. This Bedouin was implying that his revelation would have worked to the disadvantage of Obama and to the advantage of McCain, who of the two was Israel's favorite. Indeed, a poll released on November 4th, 2008, the day of the U.S. election, indicated that 46% of Israelis would have voted for McCain, while only 34% would have voted for Obama. Most Israeli Jews, unlike the majority of American Jews, sensed that Obama had it in for them. The Israeli Jews saw that something wasn't right. There were a lot of signals, and they were catching on to it, and they were very concerned about the election. Meanwhile, most Palestinians were elated over Obama's victory for obvious reasons. But whether the claims about Obama's Bedouin roots are true or just a creatively concocted, far-flung rumor that made its way into the London Times, Palestinians generally believe that he is one of them and is destined to become their hero. On an interesting side note, on September 23rd of last year, in his address before the United Nations, Muammar Gaddafi referred to Barack Obama as our son and said he wished that Obama could be president of the United States forever. I saw this with my own eyes. It was actually covered by NBC Nightly News. Uh, did any of, of you see it or hear of it? A few of you did. Amazing. Our son. This is just one more example of an Islamic Arab leader who views Obama as being one of them. Then last summer, a gentleman by the name of Nimer Hamad, the senior political advisor to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, stated that the Palestinian Authority is not concerned about Netanyahu's policies because it is support from the U.S., specifically Obama, that matters most in the end. During Benjamin Netanyahu's speech on Sunday, June 14th, the Israeli leader had declared that Jerusalem would always be united under Jewish sovereignty. But Nimer Hamad countered, and I quote, no matter what is the position of the Israeli government and no matter what are the statements of Netanyahu, what counts is what was promised to us by Obama, which is totally the opposite of Netanyahu's positions. We received encouraging signs from the Americans that we should not take seriously into consideration Netanyahu's speech, end quote. Hamad reiterated that Netanyahu's words certainly do not reflect the intentions of the Obama administration. 
He stated again, I quote, the U.S. is committed to the evacuation of settlements in the West Bank. We know from what we understand that also Jerusalem will be determined in the final negotiations that will take place on the basis of an international community that does not recognize Eastern Jerusalem as part of the state of Israel, end quote. And he's saying that our president is fully on board with this. So between this gentleman from the Palestinian Authority and Abbas and some of the Egyptian leaders that celebrated Obama's visit there and Muammar Gaddafi and King Abdullah of Jordan and the list goes on and on. They clearly, they feel, they feel that they have someone in the White House who is on their side. In late June, early July of last year, within a few days of each other, the Pope, Barack Obama, and Tony Blair each called for a two-state solution in Israel using nearly identical language. It did appear that this was coordinated because it was just within a few days and they all came out and said essentially the same thing. Well, as it turns out, all three of these men are working in cahoots on the Palestinian-Israeli crisis situation. In fact, their efforts are being coordinated largely through the Vatican, something that, again, most people are not aware of. Tony Blair, right after stepping down from being Prime Minister of Great Britain, of the UK, converted to Roman Catholicism, and then almost immediately began traveling to the Vatican and then ultimately to the Middle East. He has become the main representative of the European countries in the United States in the negotiations that are going on behind the scenes in the Middle East. But it's interesting that he converted to Catholicism and has been uh, working with Vatican officials. It's also interesting that top Israeli leaders have made trips to Rome for the same reasons regarding these negotiations. And since Obama has become president, Hillary Clinton has been there as Secretary of State as well as President Obama. And we'll touch on that in just, just a moment. But what is the ultimate goal of these individuals regarding Jerusalem? Well, first of all, they would like to internationalize Jerusalem. They would like to bring it under international control, either under the United Nations or another global governing body, possibly rooted in the EU. There are some hints of, of things going in that direction. But they would like to internationalize and get troops in there, more than there are already in there right now, to be able to enforce this so that Israel will be an international city. They would also I believe a lot points to this. This is my opinion now, but everything that's being done is moving in this direction. I believe they would like to unite Islam, Judaism, and Christianity and make Jerusalem the interfaith religious capital of the world. And as I go on in my presentation, uh, I'll give you some, some documentation uh, for this. I believe Jerusalem has been destined to be a type of interfaith hub, a coming together of the world's religions in that spot under an internationalized Jerusalem. These efforts will then, I believe, lead to the rebuilding of the temple. The question is, who will be worshiped in this rebuilt temple? I came across an excellent article uh, back in August. Uh, this is August 15th of last year, written by David Brickner, who is the executive director of Jews for Jesus. 
The title of his article is Rebuilding the Temple Revisited. And he starts the article with the following scenario. The request reads, Children wanted for future temple service. Ultra-Orthodox Jewish sect is searching for parents willing to hand over newborn sons to be raised in isolation and purity and preparation for the rebuilding of the biblical temple in Jerusalem. Only members of the Jewish priestly caste, the Kohanim, need apply. End quote. And Brickner goes on to say, words from an ancient scroll discovered in a recent archaeological dig, or perhaps an excerpt from a Hollywood screenplay or some biblical epic? Actually, those words appeared in the contemporary Israeli newspaper, Haaretz. Brickner continues, is there a rebuilt temple in Israel's future? The Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament both refer to that temple and to tragic events that will occur there in the last days. First the prophet Daniel and then Jesus, referring to Daniel's prophecy, warned people about the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place. Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24.15, as well as other passages. Brickner goes on, Daniel predicts a terrible time of tribulation beginning with the peace treaty signed between Israel and the Antichrist. Perhaps the treaty will actually clear the way for the rebuilding of the temple. Anyone who could facilitate such a momentous accomplishment would be sure to win the respect and trust of many Jewish people worldwide. But whatever respect and trust the treaty engenders will soon be betrayed. This betrayal will be manifested in such an insidious manner that Daniel, can, that Daniel can only describe it as the abomination. The fact that nearly two-thirds of today's Israeli Jews hope to see the temple rebuilt should give us pause, should cause us to be circumspect about the times in which we live. Those who understand this teaching of Scripture will temper their eagerness to see the temple rebuilt with the realization that it will one day set the stage for Israel's darkest hour. But the saying holds true, it is darkest just before dawn. Of course, Brickner there is referring to ultimately the, re the return of, of Jesus Christ. We're living in interesting times. I mean, these things are moving forward very quickly. In a matter of, of years, a few years, this could all come together. All the pieces are there now. This following article, discusses a scenario under which the temple could be rebuilt. And the article is titled, What? Muslim Leader Wants Temple Rebuilt? This is from World Net Daily. The idea of rebuilding the Jerusalem temple on a foundation occupied and administered by Islamic militants might seem fanciful, even preposterous. But the author of a new book returned from Turkey recently with news that a prominent Islamic teacher and best-selling author and Jewish Sanhedrin rabbis are conspiring to do just that. Author Joel Richardson reveals the historically unprecedented development. Now this is Joel Richardson speaking. I'm quoting him directly here. He says, Adnan Oktar, who uses the pen name of Harun Yahya, spelled Y-A-H-Y-A, is a controversial but highly influential Muslim intellectual and author with more than 65 million of his books in circulation worldwide. I believe that makes him the number one best-selling Muslim in the world today. 
Oktar recently met with three representatives from the reestablished Jewish Sanhedrin, a group of 71 Orthodox rabbis and scholars from Israel, to discuss how religious Muslims, Jews, and Christians can work together on the project. What project? The rebuilding of the temple. These three from the Jewish Sanhedrin met with the Muslim leader, Adnan Oktar, in Istanbul, Turkey. The objectives of the alliance include waging a joint intellectual and spiritual battle against the worldwide growing tide of irreligiousness, unbelief, and immorality, explains Richardson, who also met in Turkey with Oktar. But even more unusual is their agreement with regard to the need to rebuild the Jewish temple, a structure that Mr. Oktar refers to as the Majid, or mosque, or the Palace of Solomon. An official statement about the meeting has been published on the Sanhedrin's website. Concluding the statement is the following call. Now this is a direct quote from the Sanhedrin. This is a lengthy quote, listen carefully. Out of a sense of collective responsibility for world peace and for all humanity, we have found it timely to call to the world and exclaim that there is a way out for all peoples. It is etched in a call to all humanity. We are all the sons of one father, the descendants of Adam, and all humanity is but a single family. Peace among nations will be achieved through, the building, through building the house of God, where all peoples will serve as foreseen by King Solomon in his prayers at the dedication of the first holy temple. Come, let us love and respect one another, and love and honor and hold our Heavenly Father in awe. Let us establish a house of prayer in his name in order to worship and serve him together for the sake of his great compassion. He surely does not want the blood of his creation spilled, but prefers love and peace among all mankind. We pray to the Almighty Creator that you hearken to our call. Together, each according to his or her ability, we shall work towards the building of the house of prayer for all nations on the Temple Mount in peace and mutual understanding. They're talking about an interfaith house of worship. It appears that this is how they plan to introduce the temple and, uh, and perhaps to gain favor among various religions to get this thing built. Oktar explained his vision for the rebuilding of Solomon's temple to Richardson in the interview. Now, this is a quote from the Muslim leader, Oktar. He says, the palace of Solomon is a historically important palace and rebuilding it would be a very wonderful thing. It is something that any Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim should welcome with enthusiasm. Every Muslim, every believer will want to return to those days, to experience those days again, and albeit partially, to bring the beauty of those days back to life. It, uh, this is incredible. A top Islamic leader, best-selling author in the Islamic world, calling for the rebuilding of the temple and getting endorsements from rabbis in the Sanhedrin and they're going back and forth. Oktar added that the Temple of Solomon, quote, will, will be rebuilt and all believers will worship there in tranquility, end quote. During his meeting with the Sanhedrin rabbis, Oktar expressed his belief that the temple could be rebuilt in one year from the time they begin. Specifically, he says, it could be done in a year at most. It could be built to the same perfection and beauty. The Torah says it was built in 13 years, if I remember correctly. It could be rebuilt in a year 
in its perfect form. Now, this is not the only similar call to rebuild the Jewish temple, Richardson pointed out. Yoav Frankel is an Orthodox Jew who has been deeply involved in interfaith dialogue with Muslims and also envisions a shared temple mount. The Interfaith Encounter Association is working on a project called God's Holy Mountain. It sees the day when the rebuilt Jewish temple will exist side by side with the Dome of the Rock. Richardson sees such plans tying in to Barack Obama's calls for internationalizing the city of Jerusalem. And I believe that's a big step in that direction if they accomplish that. And like I said, Tony Blair and Obama and, and the Pope and others are working toward that end to try to get that done. And if you get in the way of that, you're not one of their favorite people. Now, I've talked a little bit about this cooperation between, increasing cooperation between Muslim and Jewish leaders. But they also mentioned Christianity. Somehow, Christendom has to be brought into this and agree to it for them to be able to pull this off. So that means there's got to be some kind of major deception, right, aimed at Christians to try to get Christians to go along with this type of interfaith development. My purpose this evening is not to slander anyone, but to speak the truth in a bold but loving way, and that's what I will attempt to do on this next section. I'm sure all of you have heard of Rick Warren, and um, he has become probably the, the most visible figure in evangelical circles over the last few years in America. I have a copy of an article here that came out June 19th of last year that says, Islamic Society Convention lands appearance from Rick Warren. And it says, the Indiana-based Islamic Society of North America, which by the way is headquartered only about 40 miles from our house, held its annual convention, the largest yearly gathering of Muslims on the continent, in Washington, D.C. over the 4th of July weekend. And this was the event that Rick Warren spoke at. Joining Warren for the session was the, the Islamic Society of North America's president, Ingrid Matson, as well as noted Muslim scholar, Hamza Yusuf. Now, if Warren simply went to try to reach these people, like the Apostle Paul might have done, and to share the gospel of Christ in a loving way, I would have no problem with this. He might have gotten stoned trying to do that, uh, like Paul did when he did what he did, but I would have had a problem with it. But going to speak at the national convention of the largest society of Muslim leaders in, in the United States simply crosses the line. It, it gives legitimacy to their effort. And I can tell you, living in Indiana, this organization not being far away, there are some very radical ties between that organization and various groups in the Middle East that are, are quite disturbing. But I want to keep the focus for a moment on, on, on Rick Warren. <clears throat> if, the, if this was the only thing that he had done, I thought, well, maybe he just had a bad day and made, made a bad decision. We all can do that, I realize that, but that's not the case. For about two years now, Rick Warren has been on the board of directors of Tony Blair's Faith Foundation. <clears throat> now, if you're not aware of this, <clears throat> 
Tony Blair started a faith foundation, which is really an interfaith foundation. Its stated purpose is to try to bring the world's religions together, to unify the religious community of the world. Uh, and this has become Tony Blair's passion. He has even taught on this at Yale University, I was told, last year. So he would travel over here and actually teach classes on bringing the world's religions together, this type of ecumenism. This is an openly, blatantly interfaith effort. Now all of you know what I mean by interfaith, right? The idea that all religions are pathways to God. That's what interfaith means, interfaithism. Well, on the board with Tony Blair uh, is an Islamic cleric and other people from various religions and representing evangelical Christianity, Rick Warren. Now again, this to me, this totally crosses the line, especially when you look at where this organization is going and what its purpose is. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this does not work in favor of Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christianity. I did write a, a letter to Rick a few years ago when I first saw him becoming involved in certain organizations that were questionable. I held on to it for a couple of days. I prayed over it. I wrote it as tactfully and lovingly as I could. It was not at all threatening in any way. And it was something to the effect that I, I told him about how I had worked for the government at one time, for the lieutenant governor in, in Indiana. And uh, I believe I also mentioned that letter that I had been asked to run for lieutenant governor of Indiana in 1995, something I, I turned down to keep doing what I'm doing. But I just established with him the fact that I had been in politics and that I had been invited to join certain organizations myself and then began learning about what these groups really are all about and was, came, was conveying this information to him and, and just telling him, be very careful because this is what these particular organizations are really pushing and where they're going. Well, I never heard back from him. Uh, not totally surprised about that, but I, I did try to do my part because I realized that because of what we do as a ministry and organization that I would have to warn people about this and let people know about it and so I wanted to at least give him an opportunity to, to reply and, and, and respond, and he did not. Now, I would urge everyone here this evening to make it a regular prayer matter to pray for Rick Warren on this, that his eyes would be opened and that he would get out of these organizations that he is in because he is lending them credibility. He's also going through a difficult time right now. I understand his wife has cancer, and um, I, I, I just... Uh, pray for her and that the Lord would intervene there, but also in, in Rick's life and the decisions that, that he is making because it affects so many people. When Rick Warren does something, millions tend to follow. This is, this is no small matter. This is a very serious matter. But it doesn't stop with, with Rick Warren. Back in June of last year, we discovered that Pastor Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church in Chicago was planning to bring Tony Blair to speak at one of their leadership summits. And I called this week just to make sure I confirmed it at Willow Creek that uh, Tony Blair did speak there at the leadership summit last August, August of 09. And the lady on the phone who was very kind uh, said there's a chance that maybe uh, Blair would be speaking at the upcoming summit again this August on August 5th and 6th, but they didn't know yet for sure because they did not have the final list of speakers available yet. But when they do, it'll be on their website, and I'm going to give you this information, willowcreek.com, and then you can click on Leadership Summit Registration. 
And I was told that once they know who the speakers are going to be, that information will be available there. By the way, to go to the summit is close to $300. But if you become a member, uh, you can save a little bit of money. Um, I, I really would have liked to hear what Tony Blair had to say there last August. It would have been very interesting, being the interfaith leader that he is now and a, and a top Catholic involved in Mideast negotiations uh, with Muslims, Christians, and, and Jews, and others. Uh, we'll see if he's there again this year. Much of the interfaith focus is currently going toward bringing Christians and Muslims together. That's where a lot of this effort is at. Have you ever heard of the Chrislamic movement? This is the latest thing. The Chrislamic movement. Christianity and Islam together. If you haven't heard about it, you will before long, because it's becoming quite popular already. Uh, Joel Richardson, who I quoted just a moment ago, wrote an article. He's been doing some excellent research on this. It's called Christians Celebrating Ramadan? He commented that there is a left-wing Christian sect in America often referred to as the Emerging Church. This year, a group of emergent Christians led by one of the United States' most influential pastors, Brian McLaren, has announced that it will actually be observing the Muslim Holy Month along with a Muslim partner. Ramadan is the month that Muslims thank Allah, their God, for revealing the Quran to Muhammad, their prophet. On McLaren's personal blog, he recently announced his intentions, and I quote, we as Christians humbly seek to join Muslims in this observance of Ramadan as a God-honoring expression of peace, fellowship, and neighborliness, end quote. But does such an interreligious observance go beyond mere neighborliness and cross the line of religious compromise and syncretism? Does observing the religious holy month of Ramadan create the impression of an endorsement of Islam? I believe it does. McLaren, a leading voice in this growing movement, wants everyone to know that he is not, he is not converted to Islam, but is a deeply committed Christian. But McLaren is not fasting for the salvation of his Muslim friends. Instead, he is seeking through the practice of this Islamic ritual to promote, quote, the common good together with people of other faith traditions. Despite McLaren's well-articulated niceties, what is clearly missing among his five posts on his personal blog is a single mention of praying for Muslims to come to Christ. This stands in stark contrast to the 30 Days Prayer Network website where a loving but firm position is maintained. And those people have done an excellent job in trying to reach out to Muslims with the love of Christ. While loving and befriending others is paramount to the Christian faith, the Bible is clear that Christians are to avoid actually participating in their religious ceremonies. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Yet according to Richardson, emergent pastor Tony Campola has argued that such interfaith prayers and even mystical unions are critical for all true peacemakers. This is according to, to Joel Richardson. 
So whether you have Tony Campolo, Brian McLaren, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, an increasing number of figures, and they consistently happen to be the most visible leaders in the emerging church movement, are creating a type of platform for interfaithism, having speakers in, cooperating with various religious leaders from other religions, and we need to be aware that this is taking place. I know there are pastors who were in the emergent movement and, and had gotten into some of the writings put out by, by these various leaders and were promoting them who have taken a step back as they see where this is going, but they're very few in number. Most pastors of emergent churches are rushing toward this and are getting behind these people. So what I see, unfortunately, is there, there's this division that is coming along these lines. You're going to have professing Christians that move toward interfaithism and uniting with the world's religions, and you're going to have others, other Christians, saying, no, that's not right according to Scripture. Jesus said he is the only way. Amen. The only way to the Father. And that doesn't... What, what Jesus said in John 14, 6 is a very loving statement. It's for everyone, everyone. Everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior is saved regardless of what your background has been. But you have to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and profess him as the Lord of your life and not other religious figures from other religions. Evangelicals must be warned against this growing interfaithism. I see a growing false unity sweeping this country. It's, it's everywhere. It's as if people have checked discernment out at the door, have stopped reading their Bible. I don't, know, I don't know how people can go along with this who claim to be Christians, but they are. At the same time, there's a lack of true unity. There's an abundance, a growing abundance of false unity, but there's a lack of true unity in the church at the same time that Jesus called for in John 17. And it breaks my heart sometimes when I see professing Christians bickering over some of the smallest things. I just want to say, will you just get along? Think about the example you're setting to non-Christians out there. We really need to have a degree of true unity within the body of Christ to offset all the false unity and the momentum that's going in the other direction. We need each other. We don't have to agree on everything. We need to agree on the most important things. But I'm not going to argue with you over the color of the carpet in my church or anything like that. You can do whatever you want on that front. I'm just saying we need to be very careful as Christians. All right, moving along. So much to share tonight and so little time. Let's talk about Pope John Paul II just a little bit. I told you this wouldn't be controversial at all. Um, really, the interfaith movement got going in a public way back in 1986 at a meeting that Pope John Paul II declared in Assisi, Italy, just outside of Rome. He invited over 200 religious leaders from all the world's major religions to join him there at this unity summit, including his close friend, the Dalai Lama, the symbolic leader of Buddhism. And on this videotape called John Paul II, The Man, the Pope, and His Message, let's see, this is the... Uh, let there be peace 
the Pope and other faiths. It's that series. There are several videos, and, and uh, uh, this one is video number five of this series on John Paul II. We obtained this from a Catholic organization, and they were promoting this. So this was not put together to expose Pope John Paul II. It was rather promoting uh, his efforts. You have to see this to believe it. Uh, there in Assisi, over 200 religious leaders sitting around together, and I saw at least two occultic ceremonies taking place at the platform uh, during this time. And then prior to and after this meeting in Assisi, it also shows footage of the Pope traveling to India and I believe it was Thailand, Thailand or Burma, um, and where he participated in Hindu as well as Buddhist ceremonies. The video also interviews one of the Pope's top cardinals who quoted Pope John Paul II as saying that the Holy Spirit is present in all people whether they are Christian or not. This is on here on this Catholic videotape. If you don't believe me, get it and watch it for yourself. The Vatican is where elements of Eastern religion come together with elements of Christianity in a type of hybrid form. There's, there's a lot of truth there, Christian principles, but there's also a lot of other religion uh, that is there. And there's also increasingly an open door with Islam, and I want to dwell on there for, for a moment on that um, idea. You say, how is Catholicism coming together with Islam? Well, Pope John Paul II got this going in a significant way. What a lot of people are not aware of is that Muhammad believed that when he would go to paradise, that Mary would be his wife. Muslims hold Mary in very high esteem. Also, you know the, the apparitions of Mary that allegedly appeared in Fatima, Portugal in the early 1900s? That too is significant to Islam. Reason being, Fatima was the name of Muhammad's daughter. So Muslims believe it's significant that these apparitions appeared in, in Fatima. And there are other reasons as, as well. But, but Pope John Paul II used those as an open door to begin to have a dialogue with, with Muslim leaders, which would be very valuable uh, to build the foundation for what's going on right now, today, in the Middle East that I alluded to earlier between Muslims and, and Jews and an increasing number of, of professing Christians. I could camp out on this for quite a while uh, and talk more, but we, we don't have time to go into it. I, I, I did write a lot about this in my book, The New World Religion, uh, toward the end, the last chapter, and uh, various things are documented there uh, regarding uh, Catholicism and, and some of the teachings it's borrowed from uh, Eastern religions. But what about the current pope, you might say, Pope Benedict, who, by the way, was doctrinally the mentor to the current pope. They were contemporaries. They were close to the same age. And Pope Benedict served as a key advisor to Pope John Paul II on dogma. A lot of people are not aware of that. So if you are expecting a change after Pope John Paul II's death, uh, the reason why there hasn't been much of a change of things are continuing to move in the same direction is because of their very close relationship that they had. But along with religion and, and various interfaith ideas, the popes 
have also been very active in global politics, shifting gears a little bit here. On July 6th, Pope Benedict issued his Charity and Truth Statement, also known as an encyclical. In this particular encyclical, is a rather radical document that puts the Roman Catholic Church firmly on the side of an emerging world government, according to Cliff Kincaid of Accuracy in Media. Now, I'd like to quote to you from the Pope's encyclical. These are his words, not mine. In the face of the unrelenting growth of global interdependence, there's a strongly felt need, even in the midst of a global recession, for a reform of the United Nations organization and likewise of economic institutions and international finance so that the concept of the family of nations can acquire real teeth. This seems necessary in order to arrive at a political, juridical, and economic order which can increase and give direction to international cooperation for the, for the development of all peoples in solidarity. For all this, there is urgent need of a true world political authority. Let me read that again. For all this, there is urgent need of a true world political authority. In another place, he talks with real teeth. You understand what they're saying, a global political authority with the power to enforce itself, i.e. an empowered United Nations or an EU that goes global, that has political force. We're talking about global government here. Benedict went on to say that such an authority would have to be regulated by law and would need to be universally recognized and to be vested with the effective power to ensure security for all. Direct quote. In its coverage of the Pope's statement, Reuters News Service added, the United Nations, economic institutions, and international finance all had to be reformed even in the midst of a global recession, the Pope said in the encyclical. An encyclical is the highest form of papal writing and gives the clearest indication to the world's 1.1 billion Catholics, as well as non-Catholics, of what the Pope and the Vatican think about specific social and moral issues. It was addressed to all Catholics as well as all people of goodwill and was released on the eve of the start of the G8 summit in Italy and three days before the Pope was due to discuss the global economic downturn with U.S. President Barack Obama. So we're not, talking just, we're not talking about just religious issues here, but highly political and economic issues as well. According to the Associated Press, July 10th, 2009, President Barack Obama sat down with Pope Benedict at the Vatican for a meeting in which frank but constructive talks were held. It's a great honor, Obama said as he greeted the Pope, thanking him for this first meeting. They sat down at the, pontiff's at the pontiff's desk and exchanged pleasantries before reporters and photographers were ushered out of the ornate room. The Pope was heard asking about the Group of Eight Summit, the meeting of developed nations that concluded before Obama's arrival at Vatican City. Obama said it was very productive. The Pope and Obama met for half an hour then were joined by First Lady Michelle Obama. Upon leaving, Obama again thanked the Pope. We look forward to a very strong relationship between our two countries, he said, end quote. 
We don't know specifically what they spoke about during that half-hour meeting, but as a result of things that developed within days afterwards, uh, I believe uh, the global warming climate change uh, uh, was one matter discussed and also the Mideast situation. I can almost guarantee they, they, they talked about those two things along with, with other things. Obama, I believe, recognizes the importance of the Pope's role in behind-the-scenes Mideast politics and in pushing interfaithism and globalization. Even though Obama is pro-abortion and pro-homosexual, even going so far as declaring June as National Gay, Lesbian, and Transvestite Month in the United States, probably most of you already knew that, in spite of all this, he and the Pope are working together on a number of fronts. They are in agreement on globalization, on a two-state solution for Israel, and on dividing Jerusalem, among other things. So where is all of this going? Well, I mentioned a little bit of it earlier. They, they would like to internationalize Jerusalem, make East Jerusalem the capital for a new Palestinian state, have international troops there to be able to enforce this. And once that's done, what does that do? That sets the stage for whoever is in charge and ruling to be able to do, to do whatever they want to do in Jerusalem, backed up by international forces. Folks, this is just one major crisis away from happening. We're, we're not there yet, but if things fall just right over the next year or two, this proposal will be out in the open and there will be a massive international push to get it done. We're, we're right there. Before going on, I want to read to you a quote from our summer newsletter issue that I think is quite enlightening. It was on page four of our issue for those of you who, who receive our newsletter, the summer 09 issue. There was an interesting press release posted on the, on the Dow Jones and Company's Market Watch website dated December 12th, 2008. I'm going to repeat that in case some of you want to write it down. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't checked recently. But this press release was posted on the Dow Jones and Company's Market Watch website dated December 12th, 2008. This is viewed by millions. The article was titled, Share International Reveals Christmas Miracle. Now, Share International is an occultic New Age organization out of California. It advised readers to prepare for a miracle everyone will see in the sky. Shortly before the emergence of Maitreya and his group, the Masters of Wisdom. Here are some excerpts. And I admit this would be rather funny. It would sound like you're reading out of a comic book if it wasn't real. I'm quoting. Look now for the biggest miracle of all. In the very near future, a large bright star will appear in the sky, visible to all throughout the world, night and day. Unbelievable? Fantasy? No, a simple fact. Around a week later, Maitreya, the world teacher for all humanity, will begin his open emergence, and though not yet using the name Maitreya, will be interviewed on a major U.S. television program. End quote. Maitreya was described in the article as follows. Again, I quote, Awaited by all faiths under different names, Maitreya is the Christ to Christians, the Imam Mahdi to Muslims, Krishna to Hindus, the Messiah to Jews, and Maitreya Buddha to Buddhists. He is the world teacher for all, religious or not, an educator in the broadest sense. 
end quote. Now, was this press release describing the soon revealing of the Antichrist, who may already be among us? Or is this merely a clever decoy to keep us from identifying the real Antichrist when he emerges? Only time will tell, but we need to stay in the word and keep watch. When you have things like this being said and being posted on major websites, you know, we're, we're living in the time, I believe, where we are going to see this all come to fulfillment, which, again, is why it's so important for us as Christians to be aware of these things so that we are not deceived. Turn with me back again to Matthew 24. It's where I started and where I'd like to wrap up. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 23. Jesus said, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. We're talking about a monumental deception for Jesus to warn that even the elect could be deceived if that were possible. This is a deception, I believe, that is probably going to take place in the name of Christ, or at least by a figure who claims some type of connection with Christianity or alleges to be the Christ, for Jesus to have uttered these, these kinds of words and such a strong warning. Because Christians wouldn't easily fall for something that is blatantly Buddhist or blatantly Islamic, although I'm changing my mind about that, seeing what Christian leaders are doing now with Islam, can't believe it. But it just seems like most Christians wouldn't fall for something blatant like that. But if something takes place in the name of Christ to try to draw Christians in, I think that's really where the biggest deception is going to be and where we have to be most careful. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, as well as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapters 13 and 14 are just a few of the other passages that warn us of an unprecedented deception that will take place in the last days, just prior to the return of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.14 warns us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light and his servants as servants of righteousness. So just because people call themselves Christian leaders or godly men or pastors, are they really? What are their fruits? What are they supporting? What are they saying? What are they doing? We have to ask these questions. But the prophet Daniel tells us that those who know their Lord will be strong and do great exploits. Daniel 12, 3 and 4. So in these last days, as we see these things taking place, there is room and there is a place for people who are informed, who are discerning on these matters, to sound the alarm, to warn others, to wake up people. And what better time to do so than now as we see these things that have been prophesied for over 2,000 years coming to pass before us, you realize it's easier to believe in the gospel today than ever before. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that predicted various aspects of Jesus Christ's first coming. Every one of them was fulfilled. There are many, many prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ and the things leading up to a second coming. Some of them have already been fulfilled. Others are in the process of being fulfilled. It validates the Bible. People say, why should I believe the word of God? Because it's true. How do you know it's true? Well, look at all these prophecies that were given by many different men over 2,000 years ago 
in the case of John, just a little bit less than that with the book of Revelation, but still about 2,000 years ago or more, that are happening today. The Bible is true. Jesus is the Son of God, and he rose from the dead, and he is the only way, and it's only his shed blood. It's only through his shed blood that we can gain salvation and spend eternity with the Lord in heaven and escape the punishment in hell. God has given us a special gift in his son, Jesus Christ. And all of history turns on whether a person rejects or accepts Christ. It's all what it com- that's what it comes down to. There are all those people that reject Christ. It doesn't matter what religion they're from. They've rejected Christ. Then there are those people who have accepted the Son of God for, whom he, for who he is, who have eternal life. And I believe, unfortunately, it's just going to be a small minority when Jesus returns. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there would be a majority of people in the world that believe in, in Christ? But the Bible makes clear that that will not be the case. But there, there will be a remnant that believes, and many of us here this evening are part of that remnant, desiring to know the truth and live in the truth right up until the time that Jesus returns The Lord wants us to be wise. He wants us to be engaged in speaking his truth, which will then hopefully result in leading many to righteousness. To please the Lord in these last days, we have to be discerning and persevering. We have to understand the truth and then persevere in it. Toward that end, James 1.12 has become probably my favorite life verse. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. A powerful verse. I'd urge you to commit it to memory. In these last days, it's going to be all about perseverance because I believe things are going to get difficult in the days ahead, even here in America. But I want to encourage you Obviously, we're not alone. Look at all the people around you. And there are other people in cities all across America. The Lord does have his remnant, and people are waking up. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And we have to be prepared to stand for the Lord at all costs, regardless of what comes down the pike. The Lord wants us to live our lives as an offering for him. This is how we worship him and bring him the glory that he deserves. If we truly pursue the Lord, making him number one in our lives, we will experience his joy, his peace, and his presence as we look forward to his return. So that no matter how difficult times become between now and then, we'll be able to stand firm and be overcomers through him. God's perfect will is for all to be saved and none to be lost. However, he makes clear that only those who have accepted, believed in his son, Jesus Christ, will be spared from the punishment of hell hell and will have eternal life with him. We'll spend eternity with him in heaven. Matthew 10, 28 and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10 are excellent passages. If you have never accepted Jesus as your savior, I urge you to do so 
now, tonight, not to put it off. I, I do believe that Jesus is going to return during our lifetime. I believe we are that generation. But between now and then, um, you don't want, want to run the risk of walking out of here tonight, possibly being in a car accident and going into eternity in the next moment. You want to know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. And I'm going to ask that everyone right now stand up, and if you would bow your heads with me. If tonight you recognize your need for Jesus Christ and you realize that without him you don't stand a chance of gaining entrance into heaven and having eternal life, I want you to pray the following prayer with me. Please, everyone, bow your heads and close your eyes. You can pray out loud. You can pray silently. But mean this with all your heart and direct it to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you. I believe that you are the perfect son of God and died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I receive you now as my savior. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Help me, Lord, each day to repent. Help me, Lord. Give me the strength to love you, to obey and serve you with all of my heart. Guide my steps. Help me to be discerning. Watch over me and protect me. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll leave you with this passage of scripture as Vic comes up. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Please, before anyone moves, may I just have this word with you, please? No one moving. Tonight, there are those who have heard the message and have received Christ. There are those who have not. But if you're desirous to talk with someone, we're still here at the front of the auditorium. We'd be glad to talk with you if God has been speaking to your heart. Would you bow with me? Father, we've heard the message that is so clear. We see the days in which we live, we hear it on the news, we watch on television, we hear the reports, even as given to us tonight. That which is not a coincidence, but seems like a plan. And Father, we know that Satan is crafty. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He goes about like an angel of light 
seeking to deceive. He's longing for worship, and he hears it coming from the world. So, Father, tonight, may these moments that we've spent together not evaporate simply as a memory. But, Father, that from this moment there would be action for those who have not received Christ. May they not be able to contain peace in their heart until they kneel at the altar at your cross. Dismiss us, we pray. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.